Good morning. Professor Bauman has given you an impressive, comprehensive picture of the problem. I'm now going to zoom in on one particular policy solution that holds some promise, but also considerable danger and uh, is also the location of one of the problems of justice between generations. People of goodwill are naturally delighted to see that renewable energy is rapidly increasing and rapidly decreasing in price. But what we actually need to deal with climate change is less fossil fuel, not simply more renewables. And I want to emphasize this because I think it's easily misunderstood. Renewables help with climate change only if they're substituted for fossil fuels. If they're merely added on, the problem stays the same because climate change is driven by the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuel. So in a way, it's good that we get excited about increasing renewables, but the thing to keep your eye on is the fossil emissions. And so far, we have considerably more renewables, but we also have more fossil fuel burning. The fossil fuel burning is continuing to go up along with the increase in the renewables. And this is a well-known phenomenon. We come up with item B, hoping that people will substitute it for item A, but they just add it on. And so generally, we consume more, produce, use more energy, and produce as many fossil fuel emissions as ever. So the thing to focus on is how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere. Now, with regard to the title of my talk, obviously the simplest way to make conflict worse is to decide to respond to climate change with insufficient urgency and insufficient aggressiveness. Climate change is destructive. So as the climate changes, there will be fewer goods and therefore greater scarcity and very likely greater conflict. This is especially the case because many of the goods are essential. Safe housing, adequate food, such things are what climate change threatens, food and shelter. But there's a more subtle and seductive way to make climate worse which is to rely excessively on future carbon dioxide removal <clears throat> or negative emissions technologies. And this is what um, the scientists are, are talking about very much today. Carbon dioxide removal has ho hopeful aspects in that it would to some degree and in some respects, and I'll come back to the sum. And to some degree, it'll enable us to recover from the squandered last 25 years in which we basically failed to do anything meaningful about climate change. 
but as I will try to convince you, there, there are also dangers here. Before we started talking about carbon dioxide removal, matters seemed relatively clear. A few years ago, the scientists introduced the notion of the cumulative carbon budget, and it's very helpful because what we know is that for in any given amount of temperature rise, there's an amount of carbon in the atmosphere that will produce that amount of, of rise. So if you want to keep the rise to 1.5, you want to keep it to 2, 3, whatever, scientists can say roughly what the total cumulative carbon concentration in the atmosphere can be, and you can still have that temperature. And the great thing about the idea of the carbon budget was that it was a way to instill discipline. People could say, well, we don't want to go up more than 1.5. Then the scientists can say, well, then the total cumulative emissions across history can be no more than X. And that means you have to start coming down sharply now. You have to get net zero at a particular time, and so on. So the cumulative carbon budget was very clarifying and, and was a good source of discipline. The bad news is that we're almost certainly going to exceed the carbon budget for any tolerable temperature, even if we move as aggressively as possible. But the good news is that it is, in fact, possible to remove carbon dioxide. Trees have been doing it uh, for a long time. And there are now several human technologies, which is, are what I want to talk about a little bit, which may also be able to do it. When the IPCC does a report, like the report on um, one, the 1.5 report that they just did, it's not generally understood, but the vast majority of the scenarios that allow us to end up in 2100 with a temperature no greater than 1.5 or even no greater than 2 involve vast amounts of carbon dioxide removal. So what the scenarios are saying is if you immediately start aggressively reduce emissions, reach net zero very soon, and you do a lot of carbon dioxide removal, then you can stay within, say, two degrees. Now, if we can, in fact, remove some of the emissions that we've already injected into the atmosphere, that can be a good thing, objectively, but there are two complications, and they're what I really want to talk about. The first is that however good it is objectively, it's dangerous politically and psychologically, I think, even to talk about it and to do scenarios like the ones that the IPCC has done. And then objectively, it's not as good as it sounds. And both these complications could make our response to climate change less effective, allowing it to become worse and feeding more severe conflict. So first, the political psychological problem. 
It's similar to what lawyers call moral hazard. When you think you have insurance, you may run risks that you would otherwise not run because you think the insurance will take care of things if the risks turn out badly. Politicians are always looking for excuses to allow business as usual and excuses not to have to tackle the vested interests, in our case, the fossil fuel industry and the banks who loan them the money that keeps them going. So the thought that later we may be able to remove carbon dioxide, even if it's true, can undercut the discipline that the thought that we must stay within a certain carbon budget had begun to instill. Now, there's nothing wrong with carbon dioxide removal that is a supplement to, that is additional to, maximum reduction in emissions if we could now have both maximum reductions and maximum removal, that would be great. The danger is that the prospect or hope or dream of carbon dioxide removal later will make us relax about emissions reductions now. We've been procrastinating for 25 years already. If the hope of later carbon dioxide removal feeds that procrastination, that will be bad because it's bad to trade possible removal later for actual emission reductions now. So no matter what we're going to do later, we still must have the maximum reductions now. Now, I just said there'd be nothing wrong with doing the carbon dioxide removal right now. Why aren't we doing it? Now we come to the objective story. We're not doing it because we can't do it. We don't have these technologies. The human tech, the trees are fine, and we should be afforesting and reforesting as rapidly as we can. But the human technologies that everyone is putting into the scenarios don't exist as real technologies. They're techniques which are understood, but they've never even been tested remotely at scale, and we can't be sure that they're going to be available in time, although we do need them. So there are two problems about the carbon dioxide removal as things are now. The first is feasibility. We don't know really how to do it. Now, this feasibility needs to be discussed one technology at a time, and I don't have time to uh, really do that. In the 1.5 degree report from the IPCC, the scenarios all have massive amounts of carbon dioxide removal, but then the text, the detailed chapters, discuss all the reasons why the technologies are not actually ready. So what we're being told on the one hand is we can stay within 1.5 or within 2 if we do massive amounts of carbon dioxide removal, but we can't do it yet. Now, as I said, when 
really needs to talk about these in, in uh, detail, which I can't do, but let me just quickly mention two. One, negative emissions technology or carbon dioxide removal. These, these are two terms for the same thing, carbon dioxide removal, negative emissions technologies. One is DAX, direct air carbon capture and storage. There are three firms now working seriously on developing DAX. The big problem with DAX is that it needs enormous amounts of electricity because basically you set up what look like huge fans, pull the air over the right kind of chemical and make the carbon dioxide precipitate out. And we understand this in principle but the best study of these technologies has pointed out that by 2100, the amount of electricity that would be needed for DAX to make a serious contribution, even a, namely three gigatons of removal, would take an amount of electricity equal to 29% of the electricity we now use. Now, if we had lots of renewables by then, that would be fine. You could use the renewables to make the electricity and use the electricity to remove the carbon dioxide, but first you need the renewables. And so it's replace fossils with renewables first, carbon dioxide removal later. Now, the other technology, which is what the uh, 1.5 report has all over it, is something called BEX, bioenergy carbon capture and storage, in which you grow some kind of plant or tree material, burn it, and produce energy, and capture the carbon dioxide from the combustion process. Everyone likes Bex because it actually produces energy compared to DAX, which uses huge amounts of energy. But there are two huge problems with Bex land and water. You have to grow all this stuff that you're going to burn somewhere. And there are two problems about both the land and the water. First, whose are you going to use? This is another source of conflict. If we take it easy now, on the assumption that later we can remove the carbon, which in principle we can, we're inviting conflict over land and water. And in particular, if things get desperate, we're inviting, I think, a kind of carbon removal colonialism where we say, oh gosh, things have gotten much worse than we thought. We've got to grow a lot of biological material for the bioenergy, we're going to have to have lots of land and water. So you may not want us to have your land, uh, but we're going to take it for the sake of the world as a whole. Now again, if you take the same amount of carbon removal that I was talking about in the case of DAX, the three gigatons, we would need land equivalent to somewhere between India and two times India. And we would need 
this is in 2100, and in 2100, we would need an amount of water equivalent to 3% of all the fresh water usage in the world today. So we're talking possible serious conflicts. The other problem with carbon dioxide removal is, and why it's not as good as it sounds is, that removing the carbon later is by no means equivalent to not emitting it earlier because it's it is impossible to undo the physical changes to the climate that have occurred while the carbon concentration was high, even if that concentration was temporary. In principle, the carbon that we inject into the atmosphere can be removed, and the scenarios all talk about overshoot. Now, overshoot doesn't sound so bad. It's sort of like, whoops, we did a little too much. We'll have to come back. And we can come back on the carbon. But the trouble is, while the concentration is large, and as I said in the beginning, what you always have to keep your eye on is what's the size of the carbon concentration in the atmosphere. While it's high, even if that's temporary, that will drive changes. Now, again, it would be good to be able to give concrete examples. Let me try to quickly give one. We figured out three or four years ago that the West Antarctic ice sheet is almost certainly irreversibly melting. And that means there's going to be three meters of sea level rise. If, if it is indeed irreversibly melting, then sea level throughout the globe will go up three meters. There's some evidence that the crucial glacier in East Antarctica, which is called the Totten Glacier, may be already beginning to melt. And of course, there's lots of evidence that the Greenland ice is beginning to melt, although in neither of these last two cases is it irreversible yet. One serious danger is that even if later carbon dioxide removal reduces the amount, the size of the carbon concentration in the atmosphere, while it's high between now and the time that the reductions are actually carried out, this will drive the Greenland ice sheet and or the East Antarctica ice sheet to the point where they begin to melt irreversibly. And that, as you know very well, will lead to massive sea level rises. If that tipping point is passed while the concentration is high and before the removal, then that's a huge price that we will have paid. We can end up with the emissions back down where they were, but the world won't be where it was. So the conclusion of this is nothing is as good and as certain to slow climate change as aggressive, ambitious, and urgent reduction in the use of fossil fuels now and as soon as possible. Otherwise, we invite many evils, including violent conflict over shrinking goods, including possibly the shrinkage that comes from the use of our carbon removal technologies.
we do, in fact, also need the carbon dioxide removal technologies. I'm sometimes accused of being against them. I'm not against them. I'm just saying we shouldn't do less to reduce emissions because we're hoping they'll come later. We need for them to come later. We need to invest in them, too. But there can be no trade-offs between reductions and later removals. Each is essential. Each is urgent. And there should especially be no relaxation of efforts to eliminate fossil fuel use because we're dreaming of carbon dioxide removal that may or may not come true. Thank you.